0: Hello and welcome to Horse Race Politics. This is a special extra bonus episode uh, that was recorded as part of the Festival of Ideas run by the Computational Foundry at Swansea University and the Cherished Digital Economy Center. Today, really, we're gonna pick up on some of the threads that were left hanging when we finished our, our final episode of the campaign series. You know, so obviously we've been tracking the campaign closely and when we last I suppose when we last talked to you, we were kind of bleary-eyed and tired from looking at the counting process, and we were really starting to pick up on the tensions around alleged electoral fraud that that the Trump campaign was making. And so in this episode, we pick up on this story in the week where Joe Biden will complete his first 100 days in office, reflecting on the reverberations of the contestation of the 2020 election, analysing the performance and the media coverage of the Biden regime and looking forward and, and, and taking some notes from the gambling markets to assess the trajectories of the Republican and Democratic parties. Okay, so my name is Dr. Matthew Wall and I'm an Associate Professor of Politics at Swansea University's Department of Political and Cultural Studies. And I'm joined today by my colleagues. I'm Dr. Richard Thomas,
1: I'm uh, an Associate Professor of Journalism in the Department of Media and
0: Communications.
2: Hi, everybody. My name is Dr. Elena Kilby, and I'm a lecturer in journalism at Swansea Uni's Department of Media and Communication.
0: OK, so they do say a week is a long time in politics. And I think we noted during the podcast that every every day seemed to have so many events that it was hard to cover. And it has been nearly six months since we last uh, all recorded together. So there's quite a lot to to cover. You know, when we did last meet, we were, we were kind of tired, leery eyed, having followed the election coverage uh, all night. And you know Joe Biden at that point was a pretty strong favourite to win the electoral college, and so probably the biggest theme of 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 that night uh, and uh, of the days and weeks that followed was Donald Trump's contestation of the election results. Even on the night itself, it was remarkable to note that you know several journalists, including even Fox News, cut across Trump's press conference, and where Twitter was actively kind of uh, attaching disclaimers to to his posts as the day unfolded. And I remember laying on the day you. You said, "Well, this this has been picked up quite a lot in in the world of political satire," uh, and I was wondering, really, as 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 you know, as Rudy Giuliani got more and more involved, as, as as that rolled on, yeah, how how did how did political satirists in in America kind of deal with that uh, process of contestation?
2: Well, twofold, really. I mean, I'll, I'll talk to you a little bit about social media first. So, scrolling through Twitter during that time, a lot of the the jokes were based around Trump being a sore loser, essentially. So the lack of evidence to support his claims of winning the election and the kind of this flurry of parody tweets where people were just sarcastically claiming states of their own in the same way that Trump had. But I think as farcical and as funny as the situation was, you know, these, these kind of barrage of different tweets, people doing that, that's the exact same thing as Trump, is on the other side, you had a lot of the satirists felt that Trump's behaviour and many of the GOP's rejection of the electoral college results was just this kind of icing on the cake, Uh, five long years of Trump's lies and his divisive rhetoric. And the approach they took was quite measured, really, rather than this this kind of smug, being smug in their coverage of the election aftermath. They were much more muted in their tone because they seen that these things, so these accumulation of of things that Trump had been doing over the last five years, actually then led to the events that became known on January the 6th, which is the sedition.
0: Yeah, my favourite memory, though, has to be the Four Seasons Total Landscaping uh, press conference. I don't know, do, do, do you remember that? So, I do remember
2: two that. Two or three days really after good. the
0: election to launch the <laughs> legal battle. They were meant to have booked the Four Seasons Hotel. Yeah, They turned up in this yeah landscaping company on the outskirts of Philadelphia. It, but it was their <laughs>
1: protestations that they that that's what they, meant, they meant all it. along.
0: That that was yeah. the funniest
1: part almost, wasn't it?
0: It's <laughs> the best earned advertising a landscaping company has probably, probably ever had. But then, Richard, so as Elena uh, kind of mentioned, though, this, while, while there was a kind of farcical element, it did foreshadow a sort of a build up, I suppose, of resistance to the to the election result. And even as late as February, you know, two thirds of Republican voters are still polling that they don't believe that the election was, was fair or, or legitimate. Obviously, this culminated, uh, as Elena said, in, in, in the invasion of the US Capitol on, on, on January 6th. I was wondering how that was sort of Picked up. That seemed to to me to be a huge turning point in the, you know, it burst the bubble nearly of a lot of this stuff that was under the surface.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, very few of us, those of us who'd sort of stayed up all night to watch the election result, glued as we were to CNN. I mean, I don't think for one minute that we all expected to be back there quite so soon. Glued to our screens, watching this sort of these terrible events unfolding on the sixth of January, and of course those events we mustn't forget escalated and five people lost their lives that night. Yeah. One of the themes that we we talked about a lot in the podcast series, wasn't it, was just to reflect on the fact that US broadcasting operates under different rules. In fact, doesn't really operate under any rules at all compared to broadcasters in the UK. And we know, of course, don't we, that the reporting on TV particularly, you, you probably goes beyond being partisan into the realms of being hyper-partisan. And Those two channels, MS, NBC and Fox, are sort of exemplar of of supporting both of those sides. And and when we think about Fox, who, you know, up up until sort of almost just before the election had been very sort of very firmly on Trump's side, but sort of seemed to kind of lose their nerve a little bit towards the election. There were thoughts, weren't they? But we wondered whether Fox would be a little bit more... Kind of moderate, particularly in the light of, of, of what happened on Capitol Hill. But as Adam Epstein says, writing for Quartz online, you know, if anything, they, they've they become more entrenched. Anchors, contributors, guests, he wrote, have spent much of their time on air justifying rioters' violence and floating conspiracy theories without any evidence. One contributor said that people just wanted a fair shake, and that manifested mm-hmm. itself. Uh, on Capitol Hill in a different way, but that doesn't mean to say that all of those events need to be condemned. So they took a, they were sort of playing playing that down, of course, on the night. But I think, generally speaking, the world's press, you know, were outraged, weren't they, at, at what what they were seeing in front of them. And since that happened, you know, there's been a variety of information has come out. I mean, this week, CBS report that there's now been 410 arrests since that attack at least another hundred planned. They've had that there's been the first guilty plea entered. Interesting part in the New York Times who suggests that the sort of chaos on the day was because of the sort of overlapping jurisdictions of the Capitol Police, Mm -hmm. the District of Columbia government and other agencies just created that kind of utter confusion where nobody seemed to be in charge of sort of resisting the protesters. And there's also some coverage emerging more recently about the fact that this wasn't necessarily a spontaneous event that was triggered by Trump's speech, it was sort of planned. You know, there's evidence to suggest that people were kind of plotting such an event several weeks beforehand. And and there's a piece in BuzzFeed which suggests that Facebook was sort of particularly delinquent in the way that they kind of monitored and policed the way that these things were being plotted online. And I would just, I would just end without wanting to bring any any element of, of undue comedy to the whole event when when people lost their lives. But there have been some ridiculous things happening afterwards. BBC have, have reported since that a man has has confessed or or boasted to a a, a potential date on, on a dating app that he was actually one of the rioters and he got the the response we are not a match. And I've shared a screenshot of your admissions with the authorities, which made me and a few other people smile, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I, I was very struck. Obviously, following that, there was, there was an impeachment uh, procedure in, in the Senate. And it's, it strikes me that like Fox is a good metaphor for a lot of the Republicans who sort of face this, this very difficult dilemma of, of, how, of how to kind of deal with Donald Trump, right? So, you know, you, you did see you know some, some representatives and senators condemning I think a little bit like Fox News, the broad swathe has been to to support him. Obviously, he wasn't convicted in the in the Senate. I, I suppose that it was a remarkable way to begin a, a presidency. And you know, if we move into maybe looking a little bit at, at the at these first hundred hundred days, obviously that was a big issue starting off. COVID nineteen, of course, has as has largely dominated. But yeah, I wonder, Richard, how you think how how you think this first hundred days has progressed and. What the media has made of it.
1: Well, uh, I mean, there's a lot happening this week, isn't there? I mean, the the hundred days is up on the thirtieth, a couple of days' time, and if I've got my my time difference maths right, in in about fourteen hours or so, Joe Biden will be talking to Congress for the first time, making his first address. And significant uh, there as well is behind him for the first time in history will be two women, the Speaker of, of the House Nancy Pelosi and. Uh, Kamala Harris of course first time that's ever happened i would say you know in general summary that that the sort of the, the more moderate mainstream media have been fairly positive about joe biden that there's a significance about 100 days of course it's gone goes all the way back to roosevelt actually in 1933 who had a kind of storming start to his presidency but i think i think generally biden's first 100 days has, has been received pretty well um the la mm-hmm. times for example, said he's just restored normal governance. The administration is almost boring some of the time. And of course, that was never the case under Donald Trump. Chicago Tribune says, look, first 100 days, he promised to deliver 100 million doses of the COVID-19 vaccine. When that proved too easy, it says, he doubled the goal to 200 million and he reached it. So the Tribune says, look, if Biden was simply being compared with his immediate predecessor, he'd be declared definitely the winner of that 100-day sort of contest. But there's an interesting piece in the Financial Times, actually, that, that is not kind of necessarily criticizing Joe Biden, but it, it does make the point that he was, you know, a bit like Napoleon, very lucky, you know, in, in some ways, in as much as he, he sort of assumed power at a time when all the vaccines were on the launching pad ready to go. It says, you know, the best way to look good is when the guy before you was, was under underperforming. So really, he's had a very accident free 100 first days. But I think generally that the coverage has been very positive towards Joe Biden.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of interesting, uh, Elena, because, you know, a big theme, I suppose, when we looked at the campaign was how cautious the, the campaign was on, on Biden's side. You know, it mm-hmm. was kind of risk, a risk averse yeah. um, campaign and, as he's come into these first 100 days, as Richard said, it's, there's been a lot of consensus around some of the major initiatives. And yeah, it's, it, it, it's been, I, I don't know, the, the big message has been about kind of unifying America and kind of getting back to to normal. I, I wonder, does that make a comedian's life difficult though or a satirist?
2: Yeah, I mean, in terms of the tone, I mean, I think we're going back to the Obama days now. I mean, the coverage of them is very similar because they're quite difficult to make fun of. If you take someone like Trump, who provided endless material for the late-night satirist impersonations, you know, picking up on elements of his personality, incoherent speeches and stuff. But I think this has become a new challenge now for the satirists. So someone like Biden isn't an obvious target in the same way that Trump was. So how do they fill that void within the coverage? Well, the thing is with Biden is that his personality can be quite considered to be quite difficult to make fun of. Okay, so we know over the years he said some stupid things, lots of ridiculous gaffes, but he isn't a decisive character in the same way that Trump was. He's a bit boring, a little bit beige, and totally likable, which makes him really difficult to make fun of. So I think it'd be safe to say that only desperate partisans or maybe kind of unskilled, cruel comedians, would mock, you know, certain elements or traits within Joe Biden. So we know that he had a stutter. We know that he suffered a lot of personal tragedies and to make fun of those things when he's overcome them would just be incredibly cruel. We also know that Biden is much more measured in his approach in terms of what he says in comparison to Trump and there isn't really a lot of good comedic fodder in there. Now, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. According to Steve Bado, so he used to be a former writer and producer for The Daily Show, the thing with satirising Trump was that it was the same thing week in and week out there was nothing new in the way that he was targeted. And this is something that we picked up on in the podcast is that every week it was the same kind of impersonations of Trump that became quite tired. Plus, at that time as well, there was so much to, you know, to, to satirise. But I think that became quite exhaustive for people within that industry. So at least now, I suppose that they kind of they can take a step back and breathe slightly and maybe kind of think of some other things. And I'll, I'll talk to you about that in, a, in our next segment. But I think in terms of how they're covering him at the moment, it's, it's interesting. I think it has gone back to the the Obama days where there is this kind of large liberal partisan focus in a lot of the TV satire programs, you know, Fox uh, fixating on places like Fox News and how they're covering the Biden administration. I think the one yesterday was about lies about Biden wanting to ban meat. And uh, and also about how Biden should give Trump lots of credit for the COVID vaccine. So I think it, it's pretty much gone back to the yeah, the Obama days of uh, satirical news coverage.
0: Yeah, and uh, it was something we picked up. I think we we talked about how Sarah Palin maybe was the first time we <laughs> we'd seen a comedian just literally repeating verbatim, <laughs> yes. you know a politician's speech, and that that was sort of played for laughs and. Trump sort of auto-generated satire content, and but yeah, we're, we're there is that 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 kind of theme of a of a return to normality does put yeah. across, just put across quite quite a lot of what what we've seen so far. I do wonder if we if we look forward a little bit though, it's kind of picking up on on uh, what Richard mentioned, I suppose about a lucky general rather than a than a good one. It can be quite difficult to know uh, which is which while 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 the look is is running is running green. If if you look, I suppose at these first hundred days, I I think that I think the Biden administration has been smart, right, to focus on issues where there's a, a relatively high degree of uh, support, like popular support, if not if not a bipartisan support in the in the Congress. So you know the working on COVID, a kind of an economic stimulus package, and we're now though starting to move into some of those more divisive areas right so with the infrastructure bill right that that there's quite a lot of resistance on the right to that on a lot of things being packaged into that that wouldn't conventionally let's say be thought of as infrastructure and how that's going to be funded through certain increases in in certain types of taxation immigration is is an issue that's that's really piling up there's been a rollback of some of the more controversial trump administration like the travel the travel ban but you you still have huge numbers of immigrants piling up on the border, difficult circumstances for children, and I so I wonder is you know false dawn is probably the wrong word, but if we're looking for a return to normality, the things that we normally argue about seem to me to be kind of looming, uh, looming on the agenda. I, I
1: think I think to be fair to Joe Biden, you know there was some low hanging fruit that he had no choice but to deal with, obviously with with coronavirus and so on. But I would say on top of that, he's been pretty busy. You know he's he signed another a number of bills. He's about to sign one that's going to raise the minimum wage uh, for lots of people in the US. It's going to make huge financial difference. He's about to do that. He's sort of developed some more protocols. I mean, for example, he's gone back to the thing that him and Barack Obama used to do. They used to have lunch on a Friday. He he's, he's started to do this with, with Kamala Harris. And there's a general feeling that she is playing a proper number two role to him. She's a proper vice president in as much as not only is she doing things herself but she's being involved in things you know in a way that perhaps president trump didn't do with with his with his deputy so but you're absolutely right matt in lots of the coverage that we're seeing that there's a big border crisis coming up it it seems to be a sort of perfect storm there was a very good piece that I read this morning on cnn actually and it just sort of explained the reason why this perfect storm is happening. And it's a combination of factors. It's sort of natural disasters in Latin America, obviously financial conditions worsening because of COVID-19 and, well, and a kind of perception, of course, that the Biden administration is going to be a lot more liberal minded in terms of immigration. And it's brought many, many thousands of people to, to the border. Of course, the construction of the wall sort of you know in abeyance at the moment as well, isn't it? But I think perhaps the most concerning thing that lots of the media are picking on is the fact that lots of these people who are trying to cross are unaccompanied children because of the way that the Biden administration will take the children who aren't with their parents and sort of put them into state care, so parents are sort of pushing their children in that direction, knowing that the that their kids will get looked after and Whereas this, from a humanitarian point of view, is obviously brilliant, isn't it? But, you know, in terms of the, it's giving, it's fueling the right for whom, of course, immigration is one of those kind of perennial mm-hmm. is, discussion issues. It's fueling the fire there a lot, you know, at the moment.
2: I think that that was actually picked up quite a lot by the TV satirists as well, the issue with immigration under Trump. So I wonder if that will continue to be a subject of interest for them as well with, you know, administration that they advocate and they're in support of as well. But just going back to what you were just saying as well about Biden and, you know, the kind of lack of questioning and, you know, he hasn't been around much. We didn't see him much on the campaign trail. But this moment in time, I think that the issue for satirists is that they haven't really kind of identified many of Biden's vulnerabilities and also that issue about bipartisan negotiations, which I think has been a big thing that he kind of advocated during the election as well. So, will that be the subject of his, of, you know, potential targets for satirists as it becomes more apparent, as it becomes more part of the media, and he starts exchanging with, with with journalists, will they be picking up on these, you know, elements of his personality that we possibly haven't seen yet?
0: Yeah, there's something kind of annoying, I suppose, about. Someone who tells you that that they're unifying you when, like you know, half of the more you know the Congress is quite tightly split, and yeah. th- there's very you know maybe one or two senators might go across party lines on one or two issues, but this this kind of narrative of unification, which has served well, I suppose, this first hundred days, you know, I'd see I'd see uh, some 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 room for criticism there. Mm-hmm. There's been a kind of redefinition of bipartisanship in in the Biden narrative, you know. So bipartisanship traditionally means that, you know, representatives from both parties in fairly significant numbers would vote for something. It's now been redefined to say, well, this is relatively popular with the public, including some Republicans, <laughs> you know. So, it, yeah, it does strike me that there's a there's a kind of a, a a line for for attack there. If we do just look at the the gambling markets a little bit, I mean, it, obviously, it's it's quite a long way out the next election. the democrats are generally held as as sort of being in a stronger position at the moment kind of when you translate it into into probabilities they're kind of 60 percent likely according to the the betting that you can get on them to win and republicans about 40 which is not far away from where the probabilities were during the campaign itself obviously you know you might think well with with the capital riots and there's been a Mm. sort of a it's been really difficult to hold the republican party together so you know john boner just released his kind of an autobiography former leader of the republican caucus in the congress he he was talking about the crazy faction you know the crazy faction are have to be appeased and i think that more centrist kind of respectable republicans they've been they're they're, they're in a difficult um situation
1: in the interview that trump did with sean hannity on fox matt recently i mean he he definitely didn't rule out running again in in twenty twenty four. I mean, he said he was very seriously, I quote, considering another run, and he seems to have a lot of support still, doesn't he, within the Republican mm-hmm. Party? So, I mean, you can't you can't rule him out. If 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 we 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 learnt when we were doing our podcasts, one thing about Donald Trump is that you can't predict what he's likely to do next.
0: Yeah, I mean, and if you look at the betting, so it's like, it's actually really interesting. So. Kamala Harris is actually favored as the most likely next president, with Joe Biden second and Donald Trump third most likely. So, but while the Democrats, you could say, have two quite strong frontrunners, after Trump, you have, you know, Nikki Halley and Mike Pence, who'd be on the other side of that internal divide in the Republican Party. And then maybe, you know, Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, kind of a, a Trump continuation candidate. And so, you know, in any system where it's, you know, uh, winner takes all, if you're if your own party is divided, that's never that's never good politically. And will Trump just go away? As you say, it doesn't it doesn't look uh, particularly particularly likely. One last consideration, though, is Trump has kind of lost his megaphone, you know, so with with being removed from Twitter, there was an alternative kind of uh, social media site called Parler that was set up for a while. But obviously, that's been taken down off a lot of the app stores now, so it's very difficult to get it on your, on your mobile phone. I I do wonder, yeah, like if you were to speculate who the next who the, the front runner is likely to be for the, for the Republicans, which side in this kind of you know battle between the Trumpites and the centrists it, would you it, see coming it's out? It's
1: really interesting. I mean, one thing in obviously looking at lots of the coverage as we've all been doing. One, one thing really stuck out to me, which was um, something that Kamala Harris said on a CNN town hall meeting very recently, actually, where somebody said, look, if you are the next president, what, what are the things that you're likely to do? And she said, and this is what she said, upon being elected, I will give the United States Congress 100 days to get their act together and have the courage to pass reasonable gun safety laws. And if they fail to do it, then I will take executive action. Now, obviously, such a strong statement, so ahead of the game, you know, is 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 likely to be, I would say, in, in the next presidential race, that I would imagine is going to be a key talking point, isn't it? The fact that she has come out so explicitly and said that, and we know that the kind of NRA, you know, very sort of aligned to the Republican Party. So, I mean, I think. Looking forward, that's going to be a real talking point if we are lucky enough to meet again and talk about the 2024 election.
0: Yeah, um, if there's still in America to have a vote, I suppose is the is the question. We we had a, a, a kind of a comment in today from from one of the audience members, and it kind of goes to your point, Lena, about the kind of beige of of Joe Biden. The comment was that uh, John Sopel today said Biden was an old man in a hurry. Uh, don't be gulled by how it looks, and, and I do. There is an interesting kind of point. There is, I, I suppose, it comes down to to what extent is this Bayesianist like presentational? You know, mm-hmm. it's a kind of a, it's yeah. it's a very convenient cover, I suppose. And and how you know how radical I suppose is Biden likely to be?
2: I mean, I think from what we've talked about so far, I mean, I've, I've been studying American politics for a while through the through the guise of satire. Is that you know? I think back in the day of the you know the Obama administration. We saw him as a bit of a kind of cool character. Yeah, there were a lot of gaffes. But going forward, it's quite kind of interesting. It's been very constructed, hasn't it, since the time that we were doing these podcasts is that we haven't really seen much of him at all. So I think it'd be very interesting now past these 100 days to see what that looks like, how contrived and constructed these things are past this 100-day mark.
0: Yeah. Plus, well, so I think as well, so Biden has to kind of hold his coalition together, you know. Yeah. So, you know, we go back to the primaries. You had Bernie Sanders was the kind of principal... Opponent, And, you know, Elizabeth Warren also, you know, on that kind of left side of the party, some of the highest profile uh, members of Congress in the US, like uh, AOC, would, yeah. would be quite a long way to the left of mm-hmm. of Joe Biden. I guess I guess it's it's it's, it's a question of and, and you mentioned, Richard, quite big changes about things like minimum wage. Is is there sort of, is it sort of a baby faced assassin, you know, kind of a, uh, you know, steel hand in a silk glove, whatever metaphor you might want to use is, is Biden actually like perhaps a really effective vehicle for, for some quite radical uh, policy ideas? I, I, I would imagine that, you know, I'm not
1: sure how much they would be looking over our sides of the Atlantic, these folks, but I mean, one of the things that surely won't have escaped them is the fact that the Labour Party in the UK is sort of it's sort of paralyzed with this infighting, isn't it? It's almost like death by a thousand cuts. It's just doing it to itself. Uh, And I imagine that any socialist kind of movement looking at the UK will be be looking and thinking, gosh, we can't afford to have this sort of divide in our own organization, our own movement, because it, it just sort of prevents things from moving forward, doesn't it? So it'll be very interesting to see we know that there's that kind of divide in the republican party whether it happens in the in in the democrats and the or they make this attempt to kind of come a little bit more both making some movements towards the center just to kind of mesh all of that together but you can't help thinking that the uk at the moment is presenting a sort of socialist case study as to what not to do in order to kind of assume <laughs> and hold on to power you know
0: yeah, I mean, when I when I followed political discussions in the UK, it strikes me that the factions in the Labour Party uh, hate each other a lot more than they hate the con- Conservatives. And the Democrats have been quite successful, typically in, in, you know, fighting quite intense primaries. And then everybody gets on the same page uh, during during the during the campaign itself. I, I do. I do wonder, though, as well. So, you, you know, so, something that's been a kind of an interesting theme is how this sort of media companies have, have, have tried to position themselves uh, throughout this. You know, I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on, on Fox, actually, because, you, you know, you have one, one American network kind of out to the right of, of Fox now, uh, as well as several like online providers. And there's talk of a Trump network. And uh, Fox just basically gone into the, you know, what Bonner called the crazy caucus. They're they're just throwing their cars in with with that.
1: It's very interesting what's what's happening with with Fox because obviously, as we know, they 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 sort of fell out a bit, didn't they, with Donald Trump at the sort of final days of of of, of his reign, so to speak. They were calling Joe Biden president elect, which kind of mm-hmm. upset Trump and all of this kind of stuff. They were pouring a bit of scorn on occasions on on on, on his. Contesting the election results, but what's happened since? Uh, and I mean, they lost some ground in the ratings. Fox, actually, but what's happened since is they've they've sort of fallen back in love with Donald Trump. He he, he had this sit down with with Sean Hannity. Mm. It was described by CNN. I mean, they would say this, wouldn't they? As uh, it it wasn't so much a political interview as as more like having a few beers with an old friend that you were hoping one day might get you a job. <laughs> so HuffPost said. Sean Hannity is still smitten with with President Trump. Uh, On Monday night, he opened an interview with Trump using praise so over the top, it almost looked sarcastic. But what's happening, there's an interesting power battle because there's a couple of key people that have joined Fox. Kelly uh, McEnany, who we remember being the president's spokesman, she's joining Fox News as a a spokesperson. They've also hired Lara Trump, uh, Donald Trump's daughter-in-law as a contributor as well. And um, they've come back. They've sort of, they've really come back with a ve- with a vengeance. And one of the things that they're, they're going to do, Forbes magazine writes about this, is they're going to replace some fixed news bulletins with some opinion shows. They're going to replace a 7 p.m. news broadcast with an opinion show. Uh, they've done that in January. They're going to be, also they've replaced an 11 o'clock fixed bulletin with an opinion show. Now this is, being interpreted as something that's going to kind of take that journey towards the extreme right, you know, even even further. Uh, and in Forbes quotes Fox Lachlan Murdoch saying, we are Biden's loyal opposition. I mean, you know, that you can't be any more kind of explicit than <laughs> that, really. So what's, what's going to be interesting is to see how Fox, because obviously, you know, there are some pretenders to the throne there, as you rightly say, to see how they kind of maintain their power as the kind of number one kind of cable right wing news network, and whether mm. anybody else is able to kind of land a blow on them, really.
0: Okay, and kind of going back to yeah, like talking to talking to a friend over a beer. We had we had another question here. Uh, I wonder, Elena, what do you think of this? Is the kind of you know you talked a little bit about you know the kind of bromance, I guess you could yeah. call it, between Barack Obama and, and Joe Biden. Again, there were a lot of memes along mm-hmm. along these lines the 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 person here asked whether uh, whether their friendship in your estimation helped or hindered the Biden campaign
2: i think it probably helped in the way that you know maybe people that voted for obama in the past they know that they're familiar with that person and that friendship and and that kind of connection between the both of them but i think maybe for undecided or may, maybe people that you know voted democrat and then went over to trump i I probably think that didn't play a massive part Mm. in in the campaign at all i think it was more likely a result of what has happened over the last five years and whether trump is is a good candidate you know to continue a second term or what's happened in the last year with covid so i think maybe familiar for people that you know are aware of that situation but otherwise i think policy or other kind of big things that were happening played into that
0: yeah I, I think it was more about Trump than than Biden generally. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember one uh, kind of viral video on the campaign. So Obama joined Biden. And they were in a basketball court. And, you know, typically Obama, you know, got the ball drained at kind of a three pointer from the like 20 feet out. I sort of felt sorry for. For poor old joe just kind of shuffling <laughs> along behind him you know what i mean like joe can't it's not like joe's gonna do a dunk or something right go over the top um and so it was i always felt there was that little like obama nearly brought too much star quality uh to the campaign when he when he appeared anyway so thanks so much uh to richard and elena i think it's been it's been a lot of fun chatting and so i would like to uh to thank the team at a cherished de and the Computational Foundry for all of their support on this project. And I'd like to thank our producer, Stephen Cleary of Carnival Content, who's always been very helpful with all the technical side of things. And so, yeah, I'd just like to close by that. Cheers and all the best.